So speaking of being able to see the light at the end of the tunnel and getting excited because the semester's almost over, tonight we're talking about the saddest psalm in the Bible. This is the psalm that uh, it's kind of like there's no silver lining and uh, there's no happy ending. So there you go. Have a, have a good night tonight. Um, if you're in an emotionally unstable place, you might better leave right now. <laughs> I'm kind of kidding, but not really. Um, three questions that I think this psalm begs of all of us. Whether depression's something you experience or not. We'll talk about that in a minute. You might not know whether you do or not. Three questions are written in your bulletin. The first is, the first is where are you looking? Where do you look? Where are you looking? The second is, who are you crying to? Who do you cry to or who are you crying to? And then the third one is, who can help? So why don't you stand up and we'll read this psalm. This is a psalm of a guy named Heman. Heman was on the worship team at the temple. He's not Asaph. We talked about him a few weeks ago. He was the guy who was like the head guy. Heman is uh, one of the other musicians at the temple. This is what he says. This is the word of God. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night, day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am numbered or counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one who has no strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, who you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You've taken me from me, my closest friends. You've made them repulsive to me. I am confined. I'm stuck and I can't escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do, the, do their spirits rise up and praise you? Basically, do they do church in the graveyard? Because that's where I feel like I'm doing life. Is your love declared in the grave? Is your faithfulness in destruction? Are, are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and I am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They've completely engulfed me you have taken from me friend and neighbor darkness is my closest friend let's pray father we thank you for the way that you care for us we thank you for the way that you lead us and you teach us some of us can relate to this believe it or not some of us can't We've never been at a place like this. We've never asked questions like these. We've never been in the deepest darkness. But Father, I pray tonight that you would show yourself to us, whether we feel like we're in the light or feel like we're stuck in the pit and can't escape, can't get better. Would you show us that you love us, that you're faithful, that you're powerful, and that you are there. 
Help us to see you tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks. You can take a seat. So that's some heavy stuff. Thought I'd begin at a little lighter of a place and ask you, do you have a favorite tree? I got a favorite tree. And my favorite tree is what your favorite tree should be because this, objectively speaking, is the best tree. It's the aspen tree, right? Robert's nodding his head. He agrees. So these are the trees. They have the big, white, smooth trunks. And they have that sagey, turquoisey leaves. They're kind of like the shape of spades. And in the fall, they turn golden yellow. And so uh, when you look at an aspen tree in the fall, it's like you have a green pasture because they like grow in pastures. Green pasture, white trunks, golden yellow, beautiful leaves, blue sky. It doesn't get better than that. They even sound amazing because when the breeze goes through an aspen tree, those little leaves, it sounds like they're clapping. So you, you, sound, you feel awesome. You're like walking through an aspen grove and they're like applauding. You're just like, ah. <laughs> and I always thought that aspen trees only grew in Colorado. Did you too? Because every time I'd uh, seen aspen trees, seen pictures of them. I, by the way, I grew up back east. I hadn't seen an aspen tree until I went to Colorado. Uh, but I, I only thought they grew in Colorado. And then once I actually visited Colorado, I thought they only grew on the mountains in Colorado. Because they weren't down kind of in the plains or other places. Um, now the reason I'm talking to you about uh, aspen trees is because I think faith is like an aspen tree. What I mean by faith is being able to see God. Having confidence in him. Loving him. Having a heart that trusts him even if all hope seems lost. Faith is like an aspen tree. Here's what I mean. Uh, once I moved to New Mexico, I went to Cloud Cross. And I'm like, holy moly, there's aspen trees in New Mexico. But they would never grow in Las Cruces. It's the desert. So I go to Walmart a few weeks ago. We're landscaping our yard right now. And I'm like, holy moly, Walmart is selling aspen trees. I didn't know they'd grow here. And I don't believe they're going to grow here. So I went and did a lot of research. Will this plant I'm about to spend $25 on die or not? And I discovered that it won't die. Because, did you know the aspen tree is the largest living organism on planet Earth? It's bigger than the Great Barrier Reef. Because they send out, each tree sends out roots that expand almost a football field around. And they shoot up little new trees all along their root system. And so you can have groves that go across state boundaries. They're so big. It covers three states of the same aspen tree system. Uh, And I also discovered... Uh, Not only are they the biggest organism on earth, they are the most widely dispersed tree in North America. Which means of all the species, of all the kinds of trees, pine trees, oak trees, plum trees, whatever, the aspen tree is present in more climates, places, environments than any other species. It's more versatile. It, It exists. It survives. It grows in more kinds of places than any other tree. Faith is like an aspen tree. In those two ways. Number one, you think, I think, you think faith can only thrive and grow on the lush, pristine, well-watered mountaintops of the Christian life or of life in general, right? If everything's going great, faith is going great. And the second way, it's true too. Faith is like an aspen tree. In reality, faith can grow and survive and put roots down in any kind of environment. That's been the whole point of this 10-week, going to be a 13-week series of messages this whole spring. The sound of faith and the noise of fill-in-the-blank. 
We've talked about 10 different things in the blank. Panic, forgetfulness, hopelessness, sadness, fear, anxiety, whatever else. The sound of faith in those environments. What does faith look like? What does it sound like? What does it do? Faith is like an aspen tree. We think it's only in the high, pristine, lush, green mountaintops of life. And here's, here, let me prove my point. Let's do a word association game real quick. The word is faith. What words, images, and phrases come to mind? Yes, inside voices. <laughs> what words, images, and phrases come to mind? Likely, what's coming to your mind are things like confidence or warm or like I feel close to God. He feels near to me. Words like strong, like I'm running. I get it. I'm killing it in life. Um, things make sense to me. How many of you, when I said the word faith, words like darkness, loneliness, um, panic, forgetfulness, numbness. How many of you thought those words when I said the word faith? Some of you did. Most of you didn't. Because we think faith is like we think aspen trees. They only grow in Colorado and only on the mountaintop. Faith can only survive when conditions are perfect. Psalm 88 doesn't just say faith can grow in sad days. That, that you could actually still have a grasp on God. Still see him. Believe he's good on a, on a sad day. It's going. It's like upping the ante. Taking it all the way to the limits. And it's saying could faith grow? Not just in the desert. Not just in a valley. Could it grow in death valley? 120 degrees, hadn't rained in five years. Could faith grow in a place where you haven't felt your thirst, your spiritual thirst quenched in years or months? Could faith thrive there? Could it put roots down? Could it grow? That's the kind of question that Psalm 88 is grappling with and wrestling with because it's a picture of faith and depression. We need to distinguish that word from sadness. We'll do it a little bit more in a few minutes, but like, All of you could relate to what I read in Psalm 88. I know you can because you're a human being and you've already gotten to at least age 17 or 18. So you've been through some junk in your life by this point. You know what it's like to feel that you can't see God's face. He's hidden. You know what it's like to feel like even your friends aren't helpful. Even they don't get what you're going through. You get that. That's sadness. That's grief. We could call that depression, I guess. But Psalm 88 is like even more severe than that. It's like I'm dying. There is no hope. I won't get better. There's a prophetic element to depression. It starts telling the future to you. This is the way your future is going to be. It's going to suck. And it's going to be better if you check out right now than if you actually live your future. So that's what we mean when we talk about depression. Let me read you a few accounts from people who have struggled with depression. Christians, non-Christians, whoever. It's from a book by one of my teachers and friends, uh, Ed Welch. Um, let me read you a few of these. One guy, he's, uh, he, who he was counseling, this is how he described it. He said, the doctor, when the doctor came into my room, he said, I'm going to ask you a question. If you don't feel ready to answer it, please don't answer it. Then the doctor asked, who are you? I panicked. What do you mean? He said, when you look inside, what do you see? Who do you see? It was horrible. When I looked inside myself, I couldn't see anyone. All I saw was a black hole. I am no one, he said. 
Another guy, shorter little explanation. He said, I feel as though I died a few weeks ago and my body hasn't found out yet. <clears throat> Feels like the walking dead. Another guy said, depression, <clears throat> it's, it's a complete absence. Absence of feelings, absence of responses, absence of interest in life. The pain you feel in the course of, a, of, of depression is an attempt on nature's part to fill up the empty space. There's nothingness inside of you. So this person who wrote uh, Prozac Nation, they said, the pain is nature's way of filling up that emptiness inside. But for all intents and purposes, the deeply depressed are just the walking dead. Another guy said, I could weep. This was a pastor, Charles Spurgeon. I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I weeped for, what I wept for. I wept every hour like a baby, and I didn't know why I was crying. I was sad, but I couldn't put my finger on why. And then uh, one or two other ones. He said, another guy said, I tried to sleep, but I couldn't. Part of it was that I was scared to wake up with a feeling of panic in the pit of my stomach. Anxiety was always there. For no good reason, it just got worse. I wanted to be out of the house, but I was scared to be alone. No matter what I did, I couldn't concentrate except on questions like, am I going insane? What have I done to deserve this? What sort of punishment uh, is this? Lastly, I'll read you one that the two times in my life I would have called myself depressed. This is exactly what I felt like. This is another, this is a guy from the 1900s, a businessman. And his words jumped off the page. And I was like, this is, this was me. He said, it's not just that my body's tired, but my brain is tired. I constantly feel as though an iron vice were tightening on my cranium. My head feels empty. My mind won't work. My ideas are confused and I can't concentrate. My memory is shot. When I read, I can't remember at the bottom of the page what I read at the top. As for my will, my energy is gone. I no longer know what I want, what I'm supposed to do. I doubt. I hesitate. I don't dare make a decision. I have no appetite. I sleep badly. That's from the horse's mouth. People who have or were struggling with depression when they said those things. It's this emptiness. It's this, I'm tired. I'm distracted. I can't live my life because this, the second I wake up, I am overwhelmed by the idea that I have to live for 14 hours before I get to go back to the sweet gift of my bed where my mind will stop assaulting me. That's what depression is like. If you asked Heman, the author of Psalm 88, what depression's like, he is brutally honest. You don't have to ask him twice. He says, my soul is full of troubles, like the glass is overflowing. Like, I, I was filled up a few weeks ago, thanks, and you keep adding troubles. I've fallen into a bottomless pit of darkness, and guess what? I'm still falling. I haven't hit the bottom yet. I can't find a way out of this. I have no strength left, he says, and uh, the thought of having to be awake for the rest of this day is killing me. I'm cut off. I'm all by myself. He says he cries out to God, but he can't see. The eyes of his faith can't see God. He searches. He looks intently, and he can't find him. He says, when I talk to my friends, they're of no help. They just stare at me with a concerned look and empty cliches of just try harder. Just believe more. 
And he says, this has been going on since my youth. It won't be going away. When he looks back through his life, I don't know if he actually was depressed all of his life or if it just seemed that way because he was so much in the dark at the moment. But that's what he says. And so you see what I mean when I say this is a little bit, we're dealing with something a little bit different than just run of the mill. I woke up down in the dumps because it was raining today. Not delegitimizing. I'm just saying we're dealing with something a little bit different here. And it's something some of you are nodding your heads because this is life for you. And I know it. We talk about it. Some of you are nodding your heads because you can't relate to this, but mom can. And you grew up 18 years in the house with her. Dad did. Brother or sister did. Someone in your family who took their life did. Boyfriend or girlfriend, friend, classmate, roommate, sorority sister, whoever. This is them. And you're nodding your head because you know it. But you might not know what to say or what to do. And so we try to say stuff. You're loving people. You try to take care of your friends, your mom, your dad. And Christians say stuff sometimes that's really unhelpful. Like we say things like, um, I don't know, in the face of some of this stuff, we might say something like, God won't give you more than you can handle. And they're like, are you kidding me? Did you hear what I just said? Where in the Bible does it say God won't give you more than you can handle? And, and it, it, we mean it in love, but it hurts for them to hear it. We say things like, just keep believing. I know you can make it. Press through this. And that's true. We want to encourage our friends. Um, but they hear that as, if only it were that easy. It's occurred to me that I should believe and have faith. I can't. I don't know how. And so they hear it as simplistic advice, like, thanks for the obvious. And it ends up making them feel more and more isolated and more and more, like Heman says, even my friends have been taken away from me. They don't really understand what's going on with me right now. And so maybe by now you're realizing this question of what in the world could faith look like in a place like this. Maybe that question is a little bit harder to answer now than it was a few minutes ago. And that's a good thing because uh, God would have you be honest and wrestle with difficult things, not take the easy way out. And so why don't we look at these three questions really briefly? <clears throat> what, what are they? Where are we looking? Who are we crying to? Who can help? And then I want to end actually by kind of giving some practical counsel on how do you help people who, for whom this is life. And I do want to say this as well. If this is you and you haven't talked to someone about it, would you please come up tonight and say, hey, Ben, that's me. So I would love to talk. And if you're not able to talk, I would love to walk with you through this. And there's other people here who would love to do that too. You can't get through this alone. Um, you weren't designed to. This is big deal stuff. And so uh, please come and talk to me. This sermon is not designed to answer all your questions. It's 30 minutes. Can't do it. Where are you looking? Depressed person, where are you looking? Person who's trying to learn how to love the first person in your life who's depressed, where are they looking? Depression is difficult and lonely because it's like it turns your eyeballs around. You can't see anything in the world. All you can see is inside your own mind, between here and here. So it's like your eyeballs are all flipped around and all you can see is the inside. You hang out with people and you hear their laughter and you're off in another world. Your body is there, but your mind is not. Your mind is like, it's been three years since I left. 
You go to, you come to RUF, you go to church, you hear sermons and you're like, I would give anything to believe what he just said, but I can't. Um, That's what life is like for the depressed person. Everything comes back inside. It's like a boomerang from hell. Somebody tries to encourage you, you turn around, you say, well, this, these are the 50 reasons why that can't be true for me. The gospel is true. Believe it, brother. Believe it, sister. Well, it's not true for me. For this reason, this reason, this reason, this reason. But Jesus is faithful, but he's not faithful to me for this reason, this reason. Everything boomerangs back and it becomes about me again. It circles back around and all I can see is myself. And so depression is very distracting. Um, That's why the guy said I can be reading a book. I don't remember what's at the top of the page. Because am I reading the book or am I thinking about myself? I ain't reading the book. I am dwelling in how much life hurts at the moment or how much I can't feel And so if you're trying to help a depressed person, just realize it's distracting. They have a very short attention span. It's not time for a 30-minute lecture on why they should believe Jesus more. It's like one sentence might get through, or one word might get through, one picture might get through. The problem, if you are the depressed person and you listen to these voices, is this. The more, and this is true for anybody, not just depressed people. The more you listen to your emotions and the voices inside of you, that internal dialogue, the bigger they get. The more you focus on your anxieties, they grow. It's like when you look at something inside of you, it gets bigger. And so look at panic, gets bigger. Might blossom into a full-blown panic attack. Look at depression, it gets worse. Um, look at the things you hate about yourself, you'll hate yourself even more, right? You know this. There's momentum to our thoughts. There's inertia to our thoughts. And so this is the dilemma. If your eyes are spun around and all you can see is inside and all you can hear is your own depressed thoughts. Guess what? They only grow. It only gets worse. It only gets bigger. Um, And we begin to believe our emotions, even though your emotions are just as broken as every other part of you. They didn't get out of the garden of Eden unbroken. They're just as broken as everything else. But we begin to believe them. And we say, my emotions are telling me the truth about the world around me. They're telling the truth about God. If he feels far away, he is far away now. If If it feels like he's doing bad things to me, he is bad. That's the danger when we listen to these voices and these emotions. They start telling us what is true and what is not. The second, uh, the, the bad part about that is it leaves us just stuck with ourselves, right? If your eyeballs are looking in, your ears can only hear your own voice. All of your senses can only perceive me and my interpretation of life. Guess what? Who am I left with? Just me. And so it means I, I only have myself to cry out to. This is the second question. Who do you cry out to? Who are you crying out to? Who does the person that you're trying to love, who are they crying out to? There's a passage in Hosea chapter 7. Hosea is a prophet. Hosea is lodging a complaint against the people of God. And Hosea says this in chapter 7 verse 14. He says, they, the people of God, Israel, they don't cry out to me, to God. They don't cry out to me from their hearts, but they cry upon their beds. In this book, Ed Welch uh, is, is saying that's the choice between all of us in these dark places of depression or sadness or grief. You have two choices. You can either cry on your bed or you can cry out to God. You can either cry and have only yourself or you can direct that cry to the one who has ears. The one who says he hears and the one who says he loves. Those are our options and there is a decision to make there. We're not just passive victims. 
kind of this stuff's happening to us. But those are decisions that are before us. And it's a very hard decision because we feel very weak in that moment. But we can cry in our bed or we can cry to the Lord. The Bible's full of trying to persuade you to cry to God. First Peter says, cast your anxiety, throw it on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. Psalm 62 says, pour out your hearts to the Lord, for he is steadfast and faithful, and we can trust him, for he is our refuge. And so what's the evidence in this psalm, in Psalm 88, that God is allowing you permission, he's giving you permission to cry out to him by name in brutal honesty? The evidence is this is in your Bible. This is God's way of saying, I get you. I get what human life is like. I know it. You're on the map. You're on my radar. And I know you don't have words to pray to me because you're so confused. You're so numb. And so I've written a song for you. Sing this to me. Pray this to me. That's what he's done here. That's the evidence that we we that God wants us. He wants you to cry out to him. He is not unlike your friends, depressed people who do get tired of hearing the same thing over and over again because they don't know what to say. And they're like, still, you're still stuck there. God has never rolled his eyes at his people and said, still, are you kidding me? Have we not talked about this before? Have you not read Psalm 88? Come on. Those are words he has never thought or spoken. Here's the thing about Heman. Heman knew that God heard him. And I know that I know that Heman knew God heard him. Because when you get to this point in your life, if you're still even talking to God, you believe he's good. Even if you don't know why he's doing what he's doing. Even if you don't know how in the world he could do what Jan said he'll do earlier, make all thing, turn all things around for your good, for your growth. You're like, I don't know how he's doing it. But Heman knew God heard him even though he felt like God was ignoring him. His emotions told him God has left you long ago. You're by yourself. But Heman starts this psalm and in one other place says, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry. I cry out to somebody, to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to me. And he says later in verse 13, but I cry to you, Lord, for help. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. And then he says, but God, I don't get it. It doesn't seem like you're listening. That's a prayer too. Did you know that's a prayer? You know you're allowed to pray that? That's a prayer too. That's faith. That's faith crying. God, where are you? I can't see you. And I don't know how I can keep going if I can't see you. That is faith, not unbelief. That is faith, not atheism, because it's directed at a person. Atheism doesn't know where to direct its plea. It just cries, and there's no one to answer. There's no one to do anything about it. There's no one to help. It's just there. This stuff, which is salty, which is spicy, which is messy, and which kind of makes God look bad a little bit, is actually faith. Heaven celebrates this kind of stuff, and so does God. The last question is this. Oh, I should say this, by the way. You have, to, you have to have an eye peeled for this. But Heman, his faith isn't like, or sorry, his prayer isn't like this acidic accusation against God. 
Like, who are you to treat me this way? How dare you? How dare you not do the stuff that I want you to do? Like, human still has a reverence and an awe that God is God and I am not. And he knows the whole story at one time. And I only know this tiny little piece that I'm stuck in right now. <clears throat> That's what I meant by Heman's accusations against God. He says you a lot. He points his finger a lot. You have put me in the pit. Your wrath lies heavenly on me. You have taken from me my closest friends. You have hidden your face from me. How do we know that's faith and not atheism? Because there's still a reverence there. There's still a humility there. He's, he's wrestling. He's grappling. He's trying to figure out God is faithful, but I can't see it. And so I, I, I must be blind or I must be in the dark. But God is still good. The last question, can anyone help? Can anyone help? He, he wrestled with this too. He would not have had a quick answer to this. Oh yeah, God is my strength and my refuge. Quote, chapter and verse. If you asked Heman, can God help you? I think there would have been a long pause. He would have looked around. You're like, oh my gosh, what's he going to say? And I think he eventually would have said, yes, but I don't know when. And that's what was so hard and painful for him. But again, the very presence of this psalm proves that if you ever get to a place like this, you are on the living God's radar. Whether you know him tonight or you don't know him, he knows what this is like for his people. God is empathetic with sufferers, not sympathetic. Remember that. God is not sympathetic. He's empathetic. The difference in sympathy and empathy is sympathy is... I did a lot of research on depression. I think I understand what life's like for you. Empathy is, I've been through 10 years of depression. I've come out the other side. I know because I've lived it what life is like for you. The Christian God is unique. Because he's the God who left heaven to come for his people, which means he lived in your shoes and in your skin. He went through the full spectrum of human emotions human suffering, human predicaments, everything that we went through, even temptation. He went through it all. He doesn't sympathize with you trying to scratch his head and say, geez, what is it like? I don't understand. Holy Spirit, Jesus, how are these people thinking this stuff? He has thought it. Jesus has thought it. You've seen the movie Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell and whoever the other actors are, I don't remember. We watched it a couple of summers ago. We did a summer RUF series where it was like... um, uh, the gospel in movies, and uh, the point of me bringing up that movie, Stranger Than Fiction, the plot line is basically, there's this author, Emma Thompson, right? Or whoever. <clears throat> she's an author, and she's writing a book, and she doesn't realize that somewhere across the world, every word that she writes is coming true in the life of Will Ferrell's character. So she writes like, and uh, Steve was going to work that day and a bus went by and splashed him. And then it switches to the real life, Will Ferrell's life. A bus goes by, splashes him with water. She is writing a story that is coming true real time. Here's my question for you. If you had that power, you were the author of reality. You got to write the script. What kind of story would you write? And what, what roles, what action would you give yourself? Let's say you wrote yourself into the story. What role would you take? And what action would you write for your character? 
God has been in this situation. He is the author of reality, and he entered into reality in time and space and in history and became one of us. The question becomes, what role would he give himself? Would he give himself kind of the uh, Caesar's role? Caesar tried to rewrite reality. I'm going to write in on a stallion. I'm going to be covered in gold. Everyone's going to bow down to me and say, a God, a God. What kind of role and story would God write for himself when he wrote himself into the story? If, you, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know the answer to this question. God saved for himself the most tragic, awful, suffering, trial-laden, burden-laden role of all. He reserved it for himself. You would think he would reserve the easy role for himself, right? That's what all of us would do. I want the best piece of action. I want that. God's glory is him taking the worst role of all, the sin bearer. The one who carries all of your crap that you feel guilty for, that you regret, that you wish didn't happen, but you can't undo it, that you feel ashamed about. He wrote into the story, I will come and I will take that off them and I will put it on myself and I will put onto them my role, my life of the perfect one, of the true human being, of the good one. That's the role that God reserved for himself. And so when I say God gets you, I mean, God gets you. He was known as the man acquainted with, re- with grief, the man of sorrows. And so y'all taking hold of these things, seeing a God who suffers, a God who in heaven right now, Jesus kept his scars, a God who has suffered on your behalf, seeing him, listening to him, fighting to believe in the midst of the darkness is what faith looks like in depression. I want to stop there and I want to shift it to like two minutes of very practical. If your mom is depressed or if you're depressed, what do you do? So why don't we stop there and let me say a few things and we'll be done. How do you help that depressed person or if you're them? Number one, you move towards them. This is hard. We don't like to be around sufferers because we never know what to say or do. Do I hug them? Do I say I'm praying for you or will they be offended? Do I talk to them or do I walk all the way around the seats over there so I don't have to see them? Move towards them. Look at them. Let them see the concern and the love on your face that you care. Even if you don't say a word, let them see the tear come down your face to know that you love them. Move towards them. Make eye contact. Ask them the next week you see them. Simple question. Hey, how are you holding up? How's it going? Repeat to yourself as much as possible. It is not as simple as it looks. They don't need simple advice. They don't need your guidance or your 20-minute lecture of this passage and that passage and how they all fit together and how you actually should be more hopeful than you actually are because they don't have the attention span for that. It's not going to get through. They're going to feel misunderstood, not understood. Depression is complex. It's our emotions tangled up with our bodies, tangled up with our brains, tangled up with our souls. You try to untangle that knot. It gets complicated. And so it's more complex than you think. Here's a big one. Edit yourself. (laughs) Edit yourself when you do talk to them. Here's what I mean by that. Don't try and match stories with a person who's suffering. Oh, they said two lines and you're like, oh, let me tell you for 15 minutes about the time I went through something like that. Because if you've ever been on the receiving end of that, you're like, this person totally doesn't get what I'm going through. 
but now I'm, I, I, they're treating me to like their life story. Edit yourself. They don't need you to match their story. They need you to listen to their story, to sit and nod and care and remember and pray and listen. Learn to say, I'm sorry and leave it there. You don't have to say it all in one sitting. You don't have to fix them right there. Be with them. Say, I'm sad that you're hurting this much. Go on a grace hunt. Depressed people can't see. Remember, their eyeballs are looking this way. So you have to be their eyes for them. They can't feel. So you have to be their spiritual and emotional nervous system. You've got to step in for them and be what they don't have in that moment. And so celebrate the small stuff. Did they get out of bed that morning? For people who are severely depressed, that is heroic. That's amazing. And that could be something that took an hour of fighting and praying in bed before the feet hit the floor. And heaven celebrates that kind of stuff. We should too. Did they come to RUF when the last place they wanted to be was in the presence of other people? They got here late. They left early. Is that something to celebrate or criticize them for? Celebrate. I'm so proud of you. You're acting. You're not playing the victim. You're not just a bump on a log letting life happen to you. But you're making good decisions. I know it didn't make you feel better. But that's important. You've got to be the cheerleader for them in the tiny places that are significant but they don't think are. Here's the last couple and we're done. Talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Become an expert in certain attributes that Jesus has, particularly his patience. It's my favorite attribute. It's my favorite personality trait of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, Jesus saved me, the worst of all people, to prove to the rest of you that he is perfect in his patience. Jesus isn't rushing you in your suffering. He's not sticking there with a spear. Why the heck aren't you better yet? He is with you and he has adapted his pace to move at your speed. So we need to become people who are experts in finding creative ways to persuade the unpersuadable. I know you don't feel it, but Jesus is patient with you. He doesn't hate you. He's not ashamed of you. The last two are the last for a very big reason. I'm about to talk about sin. Notice I didn't say this, the first six things. You don't start talking with someone who's suffering about sin. Sin isn't always the cause of depression, but it is often involved there. Here's the reason why when you see someone persistently rejecting the Lord, denying his goodness, refusing to believe in him, refusing to look to him by faith, do you just let that go because they're suffering and at a hard place or do you say something about it? You say something about it. You fight on their behalf. Because even if your depression came from a new medication you're on and it's really whacking up your brain, or if your depression came from some other ailment you have and it came from that, even still you have a heart and you have to respond to life. Every second we have to respond to what's happening in the world around us. Will I grumble? Will I pray? Will I bitch and moan? Will I trust God? Will I lash out in anger at this person? Will I bite my tongue and work on my own heart? Will I let my feet hit the floor in the morning or will I sleep 18 hours through the day because I'm scared to get up? Decision points. We need to cheerlead them at those places. But if you see them refusing to engage, that's when you come very graciously after a long time of waiting and praying and you say, Hey, Jesus is here. I know you can't see it, but let's believe him. He's not evil. You've got kind of a satanic theology going on. He's not evil. 
He's not killing you. He's good. Let's talk about how we can figure this out. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are patient with us, that you are gracious to us, that you love us. This is really complicated stuff. So I pray that um, no matter where we are with this, whether it's something we've dealt with, we're dealing with, or we will deal with, we pray that you would help these things sink into our minds and our hearts. Prepare us for the day where that aspen tree leaves the lush green pasture and the Colorado mountaintop and uh, takes a walk through Death Valley. We pray that you would help us trust you, believe you, and know that you're good even in that place. We ask this in your name and in your power. Amen.